Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 100. It's a new season for JFK, The Enduring Secret, season two. With today's episode, we begin the journey to explore the central character in the assassination. Well, that is, the central character as the government saw it in 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald. As you might expect, exploring Oswald is a topic that just can't be done in one episode, or even a handful of episodes. Like the Autopsy series, it will be a significant wander within our overall journey, and it's a wander that takes us to many places and covers a myriad of topics. Some people will say that to know Oswald, and to truly understand who he was, is the key to solving the assassination. Maybe that's true, and maybe it's not. It's certainly a big piece of the puzzle, no doubt about it. When we began this journey of JFK and the Enduring Secret, we started with very concrete things to talk about. The Warren Commission report, the Zapruder film and its precision calculations, the exact words of eyewitnesses. Sure, There was plenty of ambiguity and intrigue in all those episodes, but there was a certain certainty about it, at least in terms of what happened and what was documented. And then we ventured off into the autopsy where the intrigue and the suspense ratcheted up exponentially. But still, somehow we were dealing with a manageable collection of events, as bizarre as some of them seemed to be. But now... Now we are beginning to engage in even murkier waters. Sure, there is plenty that is known about Oswald, superficially in one sense, and certainly we will cover the basics just like anyone else might. His early history and the conscious stream of events that make up his life, what we know of it anyway, and certainly all of that which leads up to the day of the assassination, and of course his death two days later on Sunday morning, by a single gunshot from Jack Ruby's revolver. Even his body after death was the subject of continuing interest. It was exhumed once to ensure that the vault, a vault underneath the plain grave marking where he was buried, really contained the body of the one and only Oswald, and not a body double. Of course, the central question in the assassination is whether there was a conspiracy to kill the president, and then a conspiracy to cover it up, and whether Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone or was part of that conspiracy to kill JFK. Or, as he put it in his own words, was he just a patsy? Someone who was set up so elegantly to take the fall. Regardless of the ultimate truth, it was our government that decided almost moments after the shooting that the narrative must be that of a lone gunman. A kook of sorts was responsible for this heinous act. And thus, at that moment in history, was born the official narrative of Lee Harvey Oswald. The government's narrative and the government's depiction of a man that they needed as the focal point for a thousand points of light. For if that light had been shed and spread across the horizon under the idea that the assassin or assassins were still loose and on the run, well then, in those moments right after the assassination, the manhunt that would necessarily have been carried out may very well have revealed something quite different. But our history surrounding that event is set now. What happened is what happened. And the depiction of this man in the eyes of the American people, indeed the world, will forever begin with the preamble that was so carefully crafted by the U.S. government. The Warren Commission report contains a concluding paragraph in the section about Oswald as it attempts to explore his motives for the murder. The press, of course, likes sound bites and conclusions, so it was perfect to trumpet this simple and elegant summation of a young man's life, as they saw it. Saw it, that is, through the lens of the Warren Commission. Undoubtedly, some of what the Warren Commission pondered about Oswald was true. Some of what they said was 
conjecture. Still, more parts were a wicked twist of the truth that could only have been properly refuted by Oswald himself, had he lived. No matter how you interpret the Warren Commission's writings about Oswald, indeed, their words, their simple words, shaped a nation's view of this 24-year-old man right from the very beginning. And it wasn't really that hard to do, because he was now a man who belonged to the ages and could not respond or defend himself. Or perhaps more importantly, he could not help the nation figure this out. Figure out what really happened that day in Dealey Plaza, if there was any possibility at all of that at that moment. What things might have been like had he lived to tell that story? Sadly, like most other things in life, those in control of the narrative are the de facto purveyors of fact. Freedom is the only counterbalance. Thank goodness it still exists in this country and in our society. I hope that you will enjoy these next series of episodes and that you'll get a chance to know this man, Lee Harvey Oswald, better. Better than when we started off on this wander. And, as a juror, you will be better equipped to ask and answer whether the Warren Commission generally got it right about this man, or whether there was much more to it. So much more to it, that only a trained eye willing to look deeper and consider the totality of all the facts one now knows and possesses to draw a more accurate conclusion than the one contained in the official record about this man. For this initial episode on Oswald, I made a choice. I think it's an important one. We are not going to start with where he was born, the details of his childhood, etc., etc. We'll get to all of that soon, soon enough. Instead, though, today, we are going to pick up the action in August 1963 in New Orleans as Oswald makes his way onto two different radio shows. I'll give you the backdrop for why he ended up on these shows in just a minute, but perhaps the more salient point is that most of the audio or video documentaries on Oswald take a few small sound clips from these two radio shows. Snippets of these conversations measured in seconds, and then they leave out all the rest. Honestly, that's a shame. These two radio events contain just under an hour of Q&A with Oswald, and they represent, as we know it, the only extended audio record of a conversation with Oswald from which the public can draw a more learned view on this man's knowledge and this man's interest in international affairs, forms of government, politics, and social order, and certainly some insight into the general personality of this man. Listening to him on a radio show is certainly not a substitute for analyzing the totality of his deeds and actions, but I think that listening to this episode may be useful as a level set for all of us. These radio interviews took place in New Orleans about three months prior to the assassination. My hope is that it will do for you just what I have said and nothing more. Provide a baseline of understanding about who this man was, already at 24 years of age. A baseline to evaluate the myriad of things that you are going to hear about him in all the episodes that follow, factual or otherwise, and certainly a baseline for comparison to the official narrative established about him and contained in the Warren Commission report. Before we turn to Oswald in his own words, let's listen to those final concluding sentences contained in the Warren Commission report. Those sentences that define for this nation, indeed, for most of the world, what they were to think about this man, Lee Harvey Oswald. It goes like this. Many factors were undoubtedly involved in Oswald's motivation for the assassination, and the Commission does not believe that it can ascribe to him any one motive or group of motives. It is apparent, however, that Oswald was moved by an overriding hostility to his environment. He does not appear to have been able to establish meaningful relationships with other people. He was perpetually discontented with the world around him. Long before the assassination, he expressed his hatred for American society and acted in protest against it. Oswald's search for what he conceived to be the perfect society 
was doomed from the start. He sought for himself a place in history, a role as the great man who would be recognized as having been in advance of his times. His commitment to Marxism and communism appears to have been another important factor in his motivation. He also had demonstrated a capacity to act decisively and without regard to the consequences when such action would further his aims of the movement. Out of these and the many other factors which may have molded the character of Lee Harvey Oswald, there emerged a man capable of assassinating President Kennedy. Well, there you have it. That was the narrative of the U.S. government. Let's reiterate the essence of it one more time. They would say he had an overriding hostility for his environment, had an apparent inability to establish meaningful relationships with other people. Despite that, he had an overriding ability to act decisively when it came to actions which would advance the moment or movement. They would go on to focus on his, quote, search for the perfect society that was doomed from the start, as they say. And they also say that long before the assassination, he expressed his hatred for American society in his protest of it. And finally, their assertion that he sought for himself a place in history, a role as the great man who would be recognized as having been in advance of his times. Hmm. That's a mighty fine narrative if you are putting the finishing touches on a 26-volume set of commissioned documents whose only aim is to prove that a lone gunman did this. As I mentioned in the prologue, it's important to give context to the words that you are about to hear. Almost an hour of recorded time with Lee Harvey Oswald. It's the longest and only segment of its type that exists where you can hear him in an undisturbed fashion for a prolonged period. It took place about three months before the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The setting was New Orleans. Lee Harvey Oswald was living there at the time. The backdrop is this. On August 9, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald stood in front of the Ward Discount House at the corner of Canal and St. Charles Streets. He was distributing literature, pamphlets. You've seen people do that in any big city. What were those pamphlets? Well, they were Fair Play for Cuba Committee leaflets. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee was a pro-Castro organization that supported the Cuban Revolution. The committee was generally opposed to intervention in Cuban affairs by the United States government. It was at this very location, right there on the street corner, where Oswald found himself in an altercation with a Cuban exile, Carlos Bringier. Bringier was the head of a New Orleans anti-Castro group, the Student Revolutionary Directorate. That is the English translation for their name. The Spanish version of that name because you will need it throughout the remainder of these podcasts, is the Directorio Revolucionario Estudantil, or DRE, as its Spanish name translates to an acronym. The DRE was a Cuban student activist group that found its roots during the Bautista regime in Cuba and had a hand in the Cuban revolution that ousted Bautista. And then later, it was relaunched in opposition to Castro. Eventually, it would move its headquarters in exile to the United States, where it developed clear ties to the Central Intelligence Agency, a connection it enjoyed until the agency finally cut ties in 1966. According to Bringier's testimony to the Warren Commission, Bringier first came into contact with Oswald on August 5th, some four days prior to the altercation. Oswald entered Bringier's clothing store and approached Bringier with Oswald claiming that he was against Castro and communism. Oswald stated he was trained in guerrilla warfare in the Marine Corps, and Oswald offered to train exiled Cubans in the fight against Castro. Bringier refused Oswald's offer. Instead, he offered Oswald anti-Castro literature. The next day, Oswald returned to the clothing store to leave Bringier Oswald's copy of a book, or really a manual. It was entitled Guidebook for Marines. 
This manual was a reference book on weapons, tactics, and other military information. You may already know that Oswald, at that moment, was an ex-Marine. So it was not so odd that he would have a Marine training manual. Three days later, on August 9th, two friends of Brignere, Miguel Cruz and Celso Hernandez, entered Brignere's store. These two men would inform Brignere that there was a man right outside the store, and he was distributing Pro-Castro flyers. This was a pretty bold thing to do generally, and it certainly was a provocative thing to do right there, right in front of the storefront of one of the most prominent anti-Castro Cuban exile leaders that was then living in New Orleans. Brignier made his way outside, and what he discovered was startling, that this man Oswald, a man who some three and four days before came into his store and extended a hand of help in the anti-Castro movement. Well, this same man, Oswald, was now standing outside his store and handing out Fair Play for Cuba Committee flyers, entitled Hands Off Cuba. And he was doing it right there on a prominent New Orleans street corner at the intersection of Canal and St. Charles Streets. Brignier became enraged and he approached Oswald, accusing him of being a communist and a Castro agent. Tempers flashed and an altercation between Brignier, Cruz, Hernandez, and Oswald broke out. All four men were arrested, and Lee Harvey Oswald was fined $10 for what was ostensibly disturbing the peace. Although I believe, technically, he may have just ended up paying a fine associated with not having a license for distributing those leaflets. But we'll get to that detail in a later episode. The handing out of those leaflets combined with a scuffle that occurred created a real scene and it was covered by the news outlets. This is perhaps the most famous of events in Oswald's time in New Orleans when it comes to the assassination timeline. And trying to understand what this series of events really meant, it is a poster child for the riddle that is Oswald. You see, at the time, the only thing that the news media saw was a man representing himself as a member of the Fair Play for Cuba committee, a man who was handing out literature on a famous New Orleans street corner, an activity that would, at the very least, label him as a Marxist sympathizer, or likely to the public at that time anyway, just be a plain old commie. No intellectual distinction for most people. Socialist, communist, it was all the same. It was all red, and all the red was a threat. What the news media at that moment failed to recognize, even if they might have heard the backdrop, was that Oswald had come into Brignier's store just days earlier, representing himself as being on the exact opposite side of the fight. For God's sakes, Oswald had just four days earlier represented himself as an anti-Castro soldier of fortune, of swords. Of course, as I said, this event turns out to be one of the most studied in the JFK assassination story, namely because a series of events like this just smacks of an intelligence agency or FBI undercover operation of sorts. I mean, why would a guy go in and represent himself that way, as Oswell, the anti-Castro supporter, and then engage in what appears to be a very staged progression of events? to provoke one of the most prominent local anti-Castro leaders in the anti-Castro Cuban movement. There are, of course, a number of different theories on this perplexing series of events. Was Oswald an agent provocateur of some sort? Well, on the surface, it seems the answer to that is clearly a yes. But the more intriguing question and difficult question to answer is for who and for what reason? Was Oswald simply a Marxist sympathizer, a member of the Fair Play for Cuba group? Was this calculated in such a way that he knew this series of events would enrage Brignier and create an incident, and that the incident would then be covered by the local press, and perhaps make it look like the anti-Castro elements were radicals too, and dangerous? Well, that is one theory. And to believe this first theory, you truly have to believe that Oswald was a Marxist, pure and simple, with no ties to our intelligence services and no ties to the FBI. But still, smart enough to know when it's to your advantage to intentionally provoke someone. Think about this one for a minute 
and hold this thought. On the other hand, if Oswald had ties to the intelligence community, or he was under the employ of the FBI in some way as a paid informant, perhaps it was plausible that this exercise had a different objective. Was it simply a method by which the intelligence community or the FBI deployed resources, dangled them as bait to find and investigate Castro's sympathizers, draw them out of the woodwork, so to speak, and then get them into the open so that they could be tracked and monitored? As a Marxist sympathizer handing out hands-off Cuba leaflets, Oswald was sure to attract other communist and Marxist sympathizers by this very act, and then setting the stage to have a prominent anti-Castro leader go after you physically on a prominent street corner in New Orleans. Well, that's news. What a great way to be labeled as a Marxist, with free advertising by the press. Regardless of which of these theories you might believe, and believe me, there are more theories out there than just these simple two, but these are essentially the two primary theories. Regardless of which one of these theories you think is the truth here, we know that Oswald would have benefited under either scenario, benefited from having the press get his word out. And you know what? It worked. Oswald would make two radio appearances, and those appearances have given us the only material in recorded history of its kind on Oswald. Beginning a little more than a week after the scuffle and the arrest, Oswald would get his chance to participate on two radio shows aired on WDSU New Orleans. On his first appearance, which was a segment of the show entitled Latin Listening Post, which aired on August 17th, Oswald was interviewed alone by Bill Stuckey, the show's host, and it was more conversational in nature. But certainly the questions were asked by a man who was conservative in his political leanings, but conducted in a polite way. However, things had changed by the time the second show aired a few days later. The second show, which was a follow-on after the first show on the 17th, a show in which Oswald really presented well, and it prompted a change by the conservative station in its approach to the conversation. This time in the second show, there would be a panel there to interrogate Oswald, and a conservative interrogation panel it was. And they came prepared to marginalize Oswald and expose him as a communist sympathizer. And they did their homework before they came that night. You'll get the flavor of that when you listen to the actual exchanges. It was a panel of three plus the moderator against Oswald. Not great odds if you are Oswald. He was outmanned. And the pseudo-debate was rockier in the second encounter on a radio show entitled Conversation Carte Blanche that was hosted by Bill Slatter and who teamed up with Bill Stuckey to host the second show. On the panel that night, in the second episode, is Carlos Brignier, the very same anti-Castroite that he got into a scuffle with and which created the news event that led to the interview. Also present that night and on the panel was Ed Butler, Executive Director for the Information Council of the Americas, or INCA, which was an anti-communist group that specialized in distributing anti-communist educational materials throughout Latin America. Now that you know that full backdrop, let's get to it. Let's listen to the words of Lee Harvey Oswald as he is questioned on these two shows. This is all long enough that we present the first show as part of episode 100, and the second radio broadcast in episode 101, which follows. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 100 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. recorded on August the 17th, 1963 by William K. Stuckey in New Orleans, Louisiana. Material is subject to copyright by William K. Stuckey, 1963. Narrator is William K. Stuckey, 2317 State Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. This is the first of a series of Latin listening post interviews with persons more or less directly concerned with the conflict between the United States and Cuba. In subsequent programs, we will present talks with people who are connected with the Cuban refugee organizations, people who are connected with President Batista, and U.S. citizens with direct stakes in the outcome of the Cuban situation. 
Tonight we have with us a representative of probably the most controversial organization connected with Cuba in this country. The organization, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The person, Lee Oswald, secretary of the New Orleans chapter to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. This organization has long been on the Justice Department's blacklist and is a group which is generally considered to be the leading pro-Castro body in the nation. As a reporter of Latin American affairs in this city for several years now, your columnist has kept a lookout for local representatives of this pro-Castro group. None appeared in public view until this week, when young Lee Oswald was arrested and convicted for disturbing the peace. He was, he was arrested while passing out pro-Castro literature to a crowd which included several violently anti-Castro Cuban refugees. When we finally tracked Mr. Oswald down today and asked him to participate in Latin listening posts, he told us frankly that he would because it may help his organization attract more members in this area. With that in mind, and knowing that Mr. Oswald must have had to demonstrate a great skill in dialectics before he was entrusted with his present post, we now proceed on the course of random questioning of Mr. Oswald. Mr. Oswald, uh, if I may, uh, how long has the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, had an organization in New Orleans? We have had members in this area for several months now. Up until about two months ago, however, we have not organized our members into any sort of an active group. Uh, until, as you say, this week, we have decided to feel out the public uh, what they think of our organization, our aims. And for that purpose, we have been, as you say, distributing literature on the street uh, for the purpose of trying to attract uh, new members and feel out the public. Do you have any other activities other than distributing literature at the present time? Well, I assume you mean, do I have any organizational duties myself? Yes. Uh, yes, as secretary, I uh, I am responsible for the uh, the keeping of records and the uh, protection of the uh, members' names so that unduplicity or uh, our attention will not be drawn to them if they do not desire it. My uh, duties are, the, are as the duties of a secretary of any organization. Now, our, our organization has a president, a secretary, and a treasurer. Uh, the duties of those people would be more or less uh, self-evident. Those then are my duties. I do not, however, belong to any other organization uh, at all. Are you at liberty to reveal the membership of your organization? No, I'm not. For what reason? Well, as secretary, I believe it's standard operating uh, procedure that an organization uh, consisting of a political minority protect the names and addresses of its members. And I have every, uh, uh, that is my duty, and I have every reason to do that. Mr. Oswald, there are many commentators in the journalistic field in this country that equate uh, the Fair Play for Cuba, for Cuba Committee with the American Communist Party. Um, What's your feeling about this, and are you a member of the American Communist Party? Well, <laughs> the uh, uh, Fair Play for Cuba Committee, with its headquarters at 799 Broadway in New York, has been investigated by the Senate subcommittees uh, uh, who are occupied with this sort of thing. They have investigated our organization from the viewpoint of taxes, uh, subversion, uh, allegiance, uh, and in general where uh, and how and why we exist. Uh, they have found absolutely nothing to connect us with the Communist Party of the United States. Uh, in regards to your question about whether I myself am a communist, uh, as I said, I do not belong to any other organization. I noticed from your pamphlets that uh, one bears the title of Hands Off Cuba. I'm curious as to whether or not this applies to the Soviet Union as well as to the United States. Uh, this organization is not occupied at all uh, with the problem of the Soviet Union or the problem of uh, international communism. Uh, Hands Off Cuba is the main slogan of this committee. It means, uh, it follows uh, our first principle, which uh, has to do with non-intervention. In other words, keeping your hands off a foreign state, uh, which is uh, supported by the Constitution and so forth and so on. We have our own non-intervention laws. That is what Hands Off Cuba means. Uh, as I say, we are not uh, occupied at all with the problem of the Soviet Union. Does your group uh, believe that the Castro regime in Cuba is not actually a front for a Soviet colony in the Western Hemisphere? Very definitely. Uh, Castro is an independent uh, a leader of an independent country. He has ties with uh, the Soviet Union, with the Eastern Bloc. However, uh, 
I think it's rather obvious as to why and when and where because of the fact that uh, we certainly don't have any trade with him. We are discouraging trade uh, with that country, uh, with our allies and so forth. So, of course, he has to, to turn to Russia. That does not mean, however, that uh, he is dependent upon Russia. He receives trade from many countries, including Great Britain to a certain extent, France, uh, certain other powers in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, he is even trading uh, with uh, uh, several of the more independent uh, African states. So that uh, you cannot point uh, at Castro and say that he is a Russian puppet. He is not. He is an independent person. Uh, an independent leader of his country, and I believe that was uh, pointed out very well during the October crisis, when Castro very definitely uh, said that all, although uh, Premier Khrushchev had urged him to have on-site inspection at his uh, uh, rocket bases in Cuba, that uh, Fidel Castro refused. Do you feel that the fair play for Cuba committee would would uh, would maintain its present line as far as as supporting uh, President or Premier Castro? if the Soviet Union broke relations with the Castro regime in Cuba? We do not support the man. We do not support the individual. We support the idea of an independent revolution in the Western Hemisphere, free from American intervention. We do not support, as I say, the individual. If the Cuban people uh, destroy Castro, or if he is uh, otherwise proven to have betrayed his own revolution, that will not have any bearing upon this committee. We are uh, a, a committee... Uh, who, who do believe that Castro has not so far betrayed his own uh, country. Do you believe that the Castro regime is a communist regime? Uh, they have uh, not... Uh, well, they have said that they are a Marxist uh, country. On the other hand, so is Ghana. Uh, so is uh, 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 several other countries in Africa. Uh, every country which emerges from a sort of a feudal state, as Cuba did, uh, experiments usually in socialism, in Marxism. Uh, for that matter, Great Britain has socialized medicine. Uh, you cannot say that Castro is a communist at this time because he has not developed uh, his country, his system, uh, so far. He has not had the chance to become a communist. He is an experimenter, a person who is trying to find the best way for his country. If he chooses... Uh, a socialist or a Marxist or a communist uh, uh, way of life, that is something uh, upon which only the Cuban people can pass. We do not have the right to pass on that. We can have our own opinions, naturally, but we cannot uh, exploit uh, that, uh, that system and say it is a bad one, it is a, a threat to our existence, and then go in and try to destroy it. That would be against our principles of democracy. As a representative of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, do you feel that capitalism in any form, or at least capitalism as we know it, has any place in the future of Cuba? Well, so far, the situation has developed where that it, uh, it is irrevocably lost as far as... Uh, uh, Cuba is irrevocably lost as far as uh, capitalism goes. There will never be a capitalist regime again in Cuba. Uh, it may, Cuba may go the way of Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, or it may go, go the way uh, to the other extreme, the way of uh, China. In other words, a dogmatic uh, communist system. That depends on how we handle the matter here in the United States. Does the Fair Play for Cuba Committee have any particular position in the Cuban, uh, or, or rather the Chinese and Russian conflict? Has it taken sides uh, as opposed to China's position is conflict or as opposed to Russia's position? Well, no. We do not pass on international uh, uh, situations of that sort. Uh, as the name implies, Fair Play for Cuba Committee, we are occupied only with the one narrow point of Cuba, the problem of Cuba and what it is to us. We are not occupied or at all uh, with the problems of the uh, uh, Sino-Russian or the uh, uh, Yugoslavian-Russian uh, problems uh, whatsoever. I have here with me tonight the various pieces of literature that Mr. Oswald has been uh, distributing on street corners here in the last week. I'd like to read to you some of the titles. The first is a yellow handbill entitled Hands Off Cuba. Join the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, New Orleans Charter Member Branch. There's another pamphlet by the name of, quote, The Revolution Must Be a School of Unfettered Thought. 
dash Fidel Castro. There's still another pamphlet entitled Fidel Castro Denounces Bureaucracy and Sectarianism, and a fourth pamphlet entitled Ideology and Revolution by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, I'm curious about uh, a fifth pamphlet, however, Mr. Oswald. This, this to me was the most interesting. It's entitled The Crime Against Cuba by Carlos Lamont. The theme of this pamphlet is, uh, is the fact that the U.S. was uh, or committed a grave injustice when it uh, backed the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961. Now, it has, uh, it has probably a, a complete um, ideology here for the National Liberation Movement type of uh, philosophy that we hear a lot of in the, in the new countries. Um, picking among the paragraphs, I see one here that I'd like to hear Mr. Oswald's comment on, and I'd like to quote. It is well to recall that the national emergency proclaimed by President Truman in 1950 during the Korean War is still in effect in the United States and has been utilized constantly for the curtailment of civil liberties. Uh, what's your comment about the veracity of this statement? Well, of course, that is the last paragraph of a, a very long uh, page. That has to do with the fact that uh, propaganda in the United States has slanted and uh, and shown Cuba and Castro to be to be in a very bad light. Now uh, they have mentioned uh, the U.S. government has mentioned that Castro has uh, declared an emergency in Cuba. He has not held elections, for instance, because of the fact that there is an emergency situation in Cuba. Now the Castro government, in declaring that, is doing just what this book points out. It is doing what we did in 1950. And you recall what happened in 1950. That was during the beginning of the Korean War, when we felt that we were going to be in a very, very dangerous situation. We adopted an emergency law which restricted newspapers, broadcasters, radio and TV from giving any opinions, any comments, which were not already checked out by certain administrative bureaus of the United States government. That was under our emergency. At this time, Fidel Castro has his emergency. It is because of us and our attitude and because of the attitude of certain other people, uh, certain other countries in Latin America and certain other countries. Uh, this then is the parallel, the parallel which this uh, paragraph is talking about. An emergency in our country at that time and an emergency in their country at this time. Mr. Oswald, this is very interesting to me to find out about the restrictions on newspapers in 1950 because I was in the newspaper business at that time. Mm -hmm. I don't recall seeing any such uh, government bureau established in my office to tell us what to print. Uh, exactly what do you have a uh, reference to? Well, I have reference to the obvious fact that during wartime, uh, haphazard guesses and uh, information are not given out by anyone uh, in regards to military or strate strategical uh, comments, such as uh, comments or, or, or leaks about uh, new fronts or movements and so forth. Uh, news was controlled at that time to that extent, as it, as it is always controlled during a war or a uh, national emergency, always. Do you feel that news is controlled in the United States today regarding uh, Cuba? It is a self-control, yes, imposed by the by the uh, by most newspapers. Uh, uh, of course, uh, I don't know whether I'm being fair, but uh, of course I would have to point to the Times Picayune States Island Syndicate, since it is the only paper we have in New Orleans, and a very restrictive paper it is. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee has often approached this paper with information or comments, and this paper has consistently refused because of the fact that it is sympathetic uh, to the anti-Castro regime. It is, it is systematically refused to print anything objective, anything giving the other man's viewpoint about Cuba. Would you care to uh, list the dates of the persons that you talked to in the papers that refused to print this material? Uh, I do not know the uh, name of the reporter. I did speak to the city editor. I spoke to him one week ago, and I spoke to him yesterday. Friday, which was immediately after our demonstration when I and several other of my members had a demonstration in front of the International Trademark, which was filmed by WDSU-TV and shown last night on the news. At that time, at 2 o'clock, I went to the Times-Picayune, informed them of our demonstration, which was very well covered by WDSU-TV, and uh, they told me at that time that due to the fact 
that they were not sympathetic to this organization or to the aims and ideals of this organization, they would not print any information that I gave them. They did say that if I would care to write a letter to the editor, they might put that in the letter to the editor column. Mr. Oswald, does it make any difference to you if any of the activities of the local branch of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, benefit the Communist Party or the goals of international communism? Does it make any... Yes. Well, that is what I believe you, you would term a loaded question. However, I will attempt to answer it. Uh, it is inconsistent with my ideals to support communism, my personal ideals. It is inconsistent with the ideals of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee excuse me, to support the ideals of international communism. We are not occupied with that problem. We are occupied with the problem of Cuba. We do not believe, under any circumstances, that in supporting our uh, ideals about Cuba, our pro-Castro, as you call them, ideals, we do not believe that that is inconsistent with believing in democracy. Quite the contrary. We believe that it is a, a necessity in supporting democracy to support Fidel Castro and his right to, to make his country any way he wants to. Not, not so much the right uh, to uh, destroy uh, us. Of course, we have our, our rights uh, about defense. In other words, uh, we do not feel that we are supporting international communism or communism in supporting Fidel Castro. What other political leaders in Latin America today do you feel uh, fulfill the Fair Play for Cuba Committee's um, uh, requirements for a democratic political leader? Well, uh, you know, there's a funny story about Latin America. It goes something like, uh, like this. Coffee, bananas, sugar, and a few other products. In other words, that refers to the so-called banana countries. Uh, countries which, which uh, like Cuba up to this time, uh, had a one-crop agriculture, a one-crop economy. And where did those crops go? They went to the United States. Now, the attitude of those countries who are controlled by the United States, whose economy depends almost 100% upon how much money the, uh, the United States pours into them, those countries cannot be expected to give an independent viewpoint on Cuba or Castro. The few countries which abstained at certain in international uh, inter-American meetings during the last year are those countries which are big enough to support themselves, those countries being only Brazil, Argentina, and perhaps in some cases the Democratic Republic of Costa Rica, which is, by the way, the only democratic republic in all of Central America. What is your definition of democracy? My definition, uh, well, the definition of democracy. That's a very good one. That's a very controversial viewpoint. You know, it used to be very clear, but now it's not. You, you know, when our forefathers drew up the Constitution, they considered that democracy was creating an atmosphere of freedom, of discussion, of argument, of finding the truth. Uh, the, the rights of, well, the classic right of having life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In Latin America, they have none of those rights none of them at all and that is my definition of democracy the right to be uh, in a minority and not to be suppressed the right to see for yourself uh, without government restrictions such countries as cuba and we are by the way uh, restricted from going to cuba mr Oswald, when was the last time you were in latin america uh, i've been only to mexico in my life sir uh, i'm not fully uh, acquainted with uh, latin america personally, but then I'm not the president of this organization either. I'm merely a volunteer, a secretary of this local chapter. I do not claim to, to be an expert on Latin America, but then very few people do. Uh, certainly, it is obvious to me, being, having been educated here in New Orleans, uh, and having been instilled with the ideas of democracy and objectiveness, that, uh, that Cuba and uh, the right of the Cubans to self-determination is more or less uh, self-evident. And one does not have to travel through uh, Central and South America. Uh, one does not have to see the poverty in Chile or Peru or the suppression of democratic liberties by the Samoa brothers in Nicaragua in order to draw one's conclusion about Cuba. 
Will the Fair Play for Cuba Committee have any opinion about the suppression of democratic liberties in Hungary in 1956 or the poverty in any of the Eastern Bloc countries today? Officially, no, but of course we have our own opinions about uh, uh, such situation. We consider that uh, Russian imperialism is, is a, a very bad thing. It was a bad thing in Hungary. We certainly do not support uh, dictatorship or the uh, uh, suppression of any peoples anywhere. But as I say, and as I must stress, we are preoccupied only with uh, the, the problem of Cuba officially. We'll return for more questions after this message. Mr. Oswald, uh, you have the title of, of, of Secretary of the New Orleans Chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. However, you've just said that you've never been to Latin America except uh, for a few ventures into Mexico. In that case, just exactly how do you get your information concerning Latin American affairs or Latin American conditions? Well, as I say, we are preoccupied with the uh, problem of Cuba. There are uh, correspondents, uh, people who correspond with the headquarters in New York, from Cuba, directly from Cuba. That is where they get their information about Cuba. Now, in regards to Latin and Central America, you do not have to be a, uh, you do not have to have your own correspondent there. The AP and the UP cover it very well. And they uh, certainly give a very uh, clear picture of the situation in, in certain countries, uh, Nicaragua and so forth, as I mentioned, which uh, have very undemocratic regimes, dictatorships. And uh, as I say, these things are well known by everyone, and they accepted it as truth. Uh, for instance, you will, not, you will not be able to find any official or any person who knows about Latin America who will say that Nicaragua uh, does not have a dictatorship. Very interesting that you should mention dictatorships in Nicaragua, um, because we naturally, from reading your press, have heard about these dictatorships for many, many years. But uh, it's curious to me as, as to why no Nicaraguans fled to the United States last year, whereas we had possibly fifty to 60,000 Cubans fleeing from Cuba to the United States. Yes. What is the Fair Play for Cuba Committee's official uh, reply to this? Well, a good question. Uh, Nicaraguan situation is one uh, considerably different from uh, Castro's Cuba. People are not inclined to flee their countries unless some new system, not some new factor enters into their lives. I must say that very uh, surely into the Nicaragua, no new factors have entered for about 300 years. In fact, the people live exactly how, uh, as they have always lived uh, in Nicaragua. I'm referring to the overwhelming majority of people in Nicaragua, which is a feudal dictatorship uh, with 90% of the people engaged in agriculture. These peasants uh, are uneducated. They uh, have uh, one of the lowest living standards in, in all of uh, the Western Hemisphere. And so uh, because of the fact that no new uh, factor has entered into their lives, because of the fact that no liberating factor has entered into their lives, they remain in Nicaragua. Now, the people who have fled Cuba, that is an interesting uh, situation. Uh, needless to say, there are classes of criminals. There are classes of people who are, who are wanted in Cuba, for crimes against humanity, and most of those people are the same people who in New Orleans have set themselves up in stores with blood money and who, uh, who engage in day-to-day -day trade with, with New Orleanians. Those are the people who would certainly not want to go back to Cuba and who would certainly uh, uh, want to flee Cuba. There are other classes. There are peasants who do not like the uh, collectivization in uh, Cuban agriculture. There are others who, for one reason or another, more or less legitimate reasons, le uh, reasons of opinion, have fled Cuba. Most of these people flee by legal means. They are allowed to leave after uh, uh, requesting the uh, Cuban government for exit visas. Some of these people, uh, for some reasons or another, uh, do not like to uh, apply for these uh, visas or they feel that they cannot get them, they flee. They flee Cuba in boats. They flee any way they can go. And I think that the opinion and the attitude of the Cuban government to this is good riddance. Mr. Oswald, that's very interesting uh, because uh, as a reporter in this field for, for some time, I've been interviewing refugees for now about three years. And... Uh, I'd say that uh, the last Batista man, officially, that I talked to left Cuba about two and a half years ago. 
the rest of them that I've talked to have been taxicab drivers, day laborers, uh, cane cutters, and that sort of thing. Um, I thought this revolution was supposed to benefit these people. What is the uh, fair play for Cuba's uh, position on this? Well, as I say, there are different classes. Uh, a minority of class uh, of these people are, as I say, uh, uh, people who uh, were Batista criminals and so forth. Uh, it may not be true that the people fleeing nowadays are completely uh, cleansed of Batista elements. Uh, certainly some of these Batistaites have been hiding or have been engaging in counter-revolutionary activities ever since uh, the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion and even before that, just after the revolution. In other words, they have remained on the ground. Uh, oh, undoubtedly, the overwhelming majority of people uh, during the last year, for instance, who have fled Cuba, have been uh, uh, non-Batistaites, rather uh, peasants uh, uh, class. Uh, you say the revolution is supposed to benefit these people. You know, it's very funny about revolutions. Revolutions require work. Revolutions require sacrifice. Revolutions, and our own included, require a certain amount of, uh, of rationing, a certain amount of calluses, a certain amount of, of sacrifice, sacrificing one's old personal uh, ideas about country, uh, citizenship, work. And these people who have fled Cuba have not been able to adapt themselves to these new factors which are, have entered into their lives. These people are the uneducated, these people are the people who did not remain in Cuba to be educated by young people who, who were afraid of the alphabet, who were afraid of these new things which were occurring, who were afraid uh, that, in, that they would lose something by collectivization. They were afraid that they would lose something by seeing their sugar crops uh, uh, taken away and in place of sugar crops some other vegetable, some other uh, product planted, because Cuba has always been a one-product country, more or less. These are people who have not been able to adapt. Mr. Oliver, you say they're sugar crops. Uh, most of the Cubans I've talked to that have, that have had anything to do with agriculture in the last year and a half have not owned one single acre of ground. They were cane cutters. That is and correct. And they're the ones that are fleeing the Castro regime. That is correct, sir. That is very, very true, and I'm very glad you brought that point up. You know, it used to be that these people uh, worked for the United Fruit Company, the American companies engaged in sugar refinery, oil refinery in Cuba. They worked uh, a few months every year during the cane cutting or the sugar cutting, uh, sh sugar refining season. Uh, they never owned anything, and they feel now that that little bit of right, the right to work for five months a year, has been taken away from them. They feel that now they have to work all year round to plant new crops, to make a new economy. And so they feel that they have been robbed. They feel that they have been robbed of the right uh, to do as they please because of the fact that the government now depends upon its people to, to build its economy, to industrialize itself. So they figure they have been robbed. What they do not realize is that they have been robbed of the right to be exploited, robbed of the right to be cheated, robbed of the right of New Orleanian uh, companies to, to take away what was rightfully theirs, of course they have to share now. Everybody uh, uh, gets an equal portion. This is collectivization. And this Some people prefer the dog-eat-dog -dog economy. What do you uh, refer to as a dog-eat-dog -dog economy? Is that, uh, is that capitalism in your definition? No, that is a, an economy where uh, the people do not depend upon each other. They have no feelings of uh, nationality. They have no feelings of culture. They have no feelings of any ties whatsoever on a high level. It is every man for himself. That is what I refer to by dog eat dog. Are you familiar with the existence of a black market in Soviet Russia or in Red China, whereas um, uh, the majority of the populace get their food, uh, their, their truck crops, their vegetables, and such from this market? Do you know of such a, uh, a market? Uh, I've, uh, I know about uh, the fact that there is a, a market in the Soviet Union only for Western uh, apparel, Western apparel and certain other items. There is no black market in, in the Soviet Union for food, none whatsoever. By black market, I assume that you mean uh, a situation where food is either stolen or grown in one area and then taken to another area and sold uh, covertly, undercover. Uh, no, such uh, no such system exists in Russia. 
Mr. Oswald, uh, I'm curious about your personal background. Uh, if you could tell us something about uh, where you came from, mm -hmm. your education, and uh, your, your career to date, we'd be interested. I'd be very happy to. I was born in New Orleans in 1939. Uh, for a short length of time during my childhood, I lived in Texas and in New York. Uh, during my junior high school days, I attended Beauregard Junior High School. I attended that school for two years. Uh, then I went to Warren Eastern High School, and I attended that uh, school for over a year. Then my family and I moved to Texas, uh, where we have many relatives, and uh, I continued my schooling there. Uh, then I entered the United States Marine Corps in 1956. Uh, I spent three years in the United States Marine Corps, starting out as a private, working my way up through the ranks uh, to the uh, position of buck sergeant. And uh, I served honorably, having been discharged. Then I went back to work in uh, Texas and have recently arrived in New Orleans to, with my family, uh, with my wife and my child. What particular event in your life um, uh, made you decide that the, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee had the correct answers about, the, about Cuban-U.S. Uh, relations? Well, of course, Americans in general have only begun to notice Cuba since the Cuban Revolution. That's very true, I think. Uh, I became acquainted with it at about the same time as everybody else in 1960, beginning in 1960. Uh, I always felt that the Cubans were being pushed into this, uh, to the Soviet bloc by American policy. I still feel that way. Our policy, if it had been handled differently, and many others uh, much uh, more informed than I have said the same thing, uh, if that uh, situation had been handled differently, we would not have the big problem of Castro's Cuba now, uh, the big international political uh, problem. Although I feel that uh, it's, a, it's a, a jest and a, a right uh, development in Cuba, uh, still we could be on much friendlier relations with them and had the government of the United States, its government agencies, particularly uh, certain covert uh, uh, covert undercover agencies like the uh, now defunct CIA. And now defunct? Well, its leadership is now defunct. Alan Dulles is now defunct. Uh, that uh, I believe that uh, without all that meddling with a little bit different uh, humanitarian handling of the situation, uh, Cuba would not be the problem it is today. Is there any particular act of the U.S. government do you feel that, uh, that pushed Castro into Soviet arms? Well, uh, as I say, uh, Castro's Cuba, even after the revolution, was still a one-crop economy, having, uh, basing its economy on sugar. When we slashed the uh, Cuba, uh, Cuban uh, sugar quota, of course, we cut their throat. They had to turn to some other country. Uh, they had to uh, turn to some other uh, hemisphere in which to sell their, this, one, uh, this one product. They did so, and they have sold it to Russia, and uh, because of that, the price of Russian Cuba, uh, Russian uh, uh, sugar is now down quite a bit, whereas ours is going up and up and up. And uh, I believe that was the big uh, factor, the cutting of the uh, uh, sugar quota. Do you think that the uh, U.S. government under President Eisenhower ever wanted to help the Castro regime, ever offered any sort of help to it? True to our democratic policies, uh, uh, certain people, certain uh, persons in the government, and uh, certain policies uh, adopted very late, but adopted by the government, helped Fidel Castro while he was still in the mountains. That is very true. We cut off aid to Batista just before the revolution, just before it. That was too late. We had already done more harm than we could have ever done before. We were just rats sinking a, uh, uh, leaving a sinking ship, you see. That was not the thing to do. We have, however, uh, as I say, helped him. Uh, we have not now cut off all that help. There's one point of view which I've heard to the effect that, uh, that Castro turned left because he, he could not get any aid for industrialization in Cuba for, from the United States. Uh, does the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, believe that? Not, uh, not entirely, no. We feel that was a factor, certainly. But we feel that, uh, that the, the, the current... Uh, of the history of the world is now running to, to that extreme. In other words, countries emerging from colonial uh, uh, domination and so forth are definitely adopting uh, socialistic, leftist, Marxist, and even in some case uh, what will be in the future communist regimes and uh, communist uh, uh, inclinations. 
You see, this is something which is a, apparently a world trend. Did the Fair Play for Cuba Committee believe that this trend should also be copied in, in the United States? No, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee is occupied only with the Cuban uh, problem. Uh, I do not think that they, uh, uh, they feel that way, no. Thank you very much, Mr. Oswald. Uh, tonight we've been talking with Lee Oswald, the uh, secretary of the New Orleans chapter of the Pro-Castro Fair Play for Cuban Committee. In subsequent programs, we will present the comments of other leaders concerned with the U.S.-Cuban conflict. Good night. Thank you for listening to episode 100 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 